There's a lot of doomsaying in our world today. A lot of fears, many justified, about political infighting, rising authoritarianism, climate catastrophe, outright warfare, and even the potential collapse of human civilization as we know it. One reflex that many of us feel in response to these terrifying prospects is to deny it, to say, that just can't be, or don't dwell in the negative, or you have to hang on to hope. Because if that doomsaying is true, we might feel quite helpless to do much to change it. But what if the doomsaying is, sadly, tragically, more right than it is wrong? What if we as a civilization are on a path to eventual collapse? What if we give up on idle hope and yet don't give up on something or anything that remains within our power to change? What if our fight today is not to save the whole world as we know it, but to do what we can to help save our species from ourselves? From the New Story Company, this is The New Story Is, a podcast that explores the stories, perceptions, and ideas that have come to shape the world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the new stories that may shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Ursillo. Reckoning with existential dilemmas about the state of our world and the future of humanity itself has been the life's work of our guest today. We are honored to be joined by Margaret Wheatley. Meg is the best-selling author of nine books and across an expansive career spanning nearly 50 years, she has worked as a speaker, a teacher, community worker, consultant, a formal advisor for leadership programs on six continents and beyond. She is a mystic, sometimes a provocateur, unapologetically honest, and a tremendous source of wisdom. She sat on stages with the Dalai Lama, co-led workshops with Pema Chodron, and helped to develop hundreds of organizations and communities worldwide. Today, Meg trains who she calls warriors for the human spirit, life-affirming leaders and activists who are developing the qualities and skillful means, she says, are necessary to protect and preserve the human spirit and the spirit of life. Her 2017 book, Who Do We Choose to Be?, will be republished as an updated second edition in June 2023. Meg, welcome to The New Story Is, and thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. That's a wonderful setup for our conversation. I really appreciate it. Um, I'd love to start, if we may, uh, talking a bit about your career. And I know your career began, I believe, as an organizational consultant and researcher in or around 1973. Yes. Uh, but your work has evolved and shifted quite a, bit, quite a bit since then, let alone in recent years. Could you tell us a little bit about how the focus of your career has evolved um, throughout your, your time working in the space that you do? Yes, I love that. Actually, my career work life was set in motion when I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Korea, in post-war right. Korea, in a highly traditional Asian society, which has since disappeared with globalization. Korea is now the poster child, or was, of globalization. But what was set in motion then was my abiding interest, curiosity, and eagerness to know who we are as people, and more specifically, how we work together. So I've always been focused on how we work together in groups and how we, and then how we lead people in a way that brings out the best qualities of the human spirit. 
Now, going to the doomsday perspective, and I want to refer everyone to a wonderful website that is based on the post-doom, no gloom by... uh, We might talk about that later by Michael Dowd. But um, I started out feeling very, very optimistic and idealistic that we had the right ideas. We would learn a whole new paradigm. This is what Leadership in the New Science, which came out 31 years ago. It was based on my great idealism that if people saw a new way of leading that was more productive in their terms, but much more motivating, inspiring, and fulfilling in human terms, then of course they would adopt it. And I think coming out with a book early on, um, it was pivotal for me, I a book that actually assumed we would change, well, it assumed that ideas change the world. That's the basic, uh, non, the basically false assumption of my early work. Um, but I had worked with a lot of leaders. That was a very potent period in the field of organizational behavior. It was just becoming a field when I, uh, entered it and we we had time we had attention we had enough courageous leaders that we could really do deep cultural change work and then it all changed uh and we went for greed and fame and uh leaders went you know crazy as all elites do at the end of a civilization they went crazy for their own power privilege and position so what I learned in from then on, so we're at 1992, and then when I really started writing books, it was all about different ways that we could support the human spirit. We could create much more productive workplaces, healthy communities. I kept up with that, and that's the theme, the the storyline through my work. But then by 2012, I realized, oh, we're not getting out of this. Things have been set in motion. I have a deep understanding of how living systems, how the planet, therefore, uh, works, what its laws are. And I could see the growth of domination, everything you just mentioned, greed, authoritarianism, controlling people by fear, and now increasingly our desperate situation where all nations are choosing to militarize, to protect their borders rather than come together in common cause around environmental climate overshoot issues. So in 2012, I wrote a book called So Far From Home, Lost and Found in Our Brave New World, And the general response to that, it was a very hard book to write because I was expressing the clarity of where we are headed and that there is no way back. And so even people at my publisher, Barrett Kohler, would come up to me and say, what happened to you? You know, you were so cheerful, idealistic hopeful. (laughs) And now you're writing what is basically a doomsday book. And 
all, my only response to them, which it still is. Are you paying attention? Do you notice what's happening in the world? I mean, this is not just up to us to change our storyline and think positively or uh, network and affiliate together so we can, you know, create a brave, wonderful new world of peace, justice, everything else that's in that. We have to face reality. And so my work since 2012 has been not doomsday, but just finding those few people who are always present at the end of a civilization, this is just historical fact, who realize that what's required of them are increased levels of um, self-sacrifice and training not only to withstand the terrible, destructive, life-destroying dynamics of their time, and I'm putting it in a historical context, so I'm using plural here. It's not just us. Um, but these people always, as uh, Sir John Glubb, one of the historians I'm devoted to, said they raised the banner of duty and service against the depravity and despair of their time. So for me, it's been critically important that we learn not only to face reality, which is devastatingly depressing, but once we face reality, what are we going to do as service, as acts of contribution? And that's why I gave rise to the Warriors for the Human Spirit, which we can talk more about. But before I <laughs> stop my monologue here. I want to say that one of the pieces I wrote just a few years ago, because I was getting fed up with people saying, oh, Meg, you're so depressing. You're, you're a pessimist. Well, I'm an optimist, like it's a badge of honor. And I would just say, no, I'm a realist. But I, I finally wrote a short piece of saying, you know, well, what about that glass of water? Is it half full or half empty? And what I'm interested in and what warriors are interested in is saying, oh, look, there's water. Who needs it? And how are we going to get it to them? So that's facing reality without any need for hope or fear and just figuring out, okay, how can I get this water to the people who are in dire need of it? So it's been a growth evolution, but I would say if I was going to sum up my uh being out in the world with great curiosity and increasing concern and compassion for what's happening to people, 8 billion of us. Um, I've always known that we could do it differently. We could do it better, but we're not going to. And that's that was devastating, but also leads to incredibly useful work. Yeah, and I want to speak with you about that useful work. Um, but I also want to double back around to an idea that I think some listeners who may be introduced to the first time of the the study of the pattern of civilization collapse and saying quite quite plainly that, oh yeah, like it is all actually falling apart, because that's a an idea that we tease out and question, right? Uh day to day. Are things really as bad as they seem? Are they worse than they seem? Is it, you know, are we missing something? Is it confirmation bias? Are we just reinforcing a story that will lead to these things? 
<laughs> chicken and the egg in between. Um, could you tell us a little bit, like in brief, because you've you've written about it extensively, you've spoken about it extensively, but for those who don't even know that the study of civilization collapse exists, could you give us a brief summary of yes. what well, the hallmarks know, are? Yeah. Happy to. It's been the Greeks studied ancient civilizations and their patterns of rise and fall. Then starting in 1900, it became a real field of research and study. And what's, and and it has continued uh, to this time. So my own interest is in what are the patterns of history? Now, we aren't interested in that. Our current civilization is so focused on the myth of progress and the myth of technolo- what's called technological majesty, that whatever problem we create, we're going to figure a way out, and of course, it's always getting better. That's like an American ethos right there, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the poet David White years ago said, you know, if you think life is always improving, you're going to miss half of it. Mm. <laughs> but we don't have, we have a linear model of progress when in fact all life, all life works in cycles. Now we know that in our bodies. We know that in the seasons. We know that things are born, flourish, harvested, and die, and then born again. So when we speak about the cycle of civilizations, then, first of all, we have to, is well documented, and then we have to recognize, well, where are we on this cycle, not on this endlessly linear, always getting better myth? The pattern is so startlingly accurate down to little details um, and again, I'm drawing on Sir John Glubb, who's a British historian, but the seminal work is by Joseph Tainter, an American, who just chronicled this pattern exactly. So that's what got me interested, and it actually is a source of comfort. So I'll give you some examples. Yeah, please. So in the last stage of a civilization called the Age of Decadence, all civilizations move from high idealism, everyone's willing to sacrifice for the cause, and then business flourishes. And so materialism, consumerism takes over. I'm not just describing us. It's the pattern. And once consumerism uh, takes over, Every generation wants more things and a better lifestyle than their parents. And so the governments comply with that and people move into entitlements. People move into um, frustration that they're not getting enough. The governments give them a lot and then the governments go broke and it all disappears. But some of the more interesting specifics are that in the age of decadence, in every civilization. So we're, we're not just talking about Rome here, which is our familiar reference point. We're talking about Byzantium, Mayan culture, Incan culture, uh, different stages in Egyptian civilization had several different rise and falls. So this is not Western. This is how humans behave once they organize in urban cultures. 
when they're not living on the land as indigenous people any longer. So one of the things that really startled me was at a, in the age of decadence, what is worshipped are sports heroes, musicians, and actors. Mm. And look at our celebrity culture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> look right. at any magazine on a stand these days. Look at the presidential medals of freedom have been given the majority to athletes and musicians and movie stars. So that's one startling box we can tick off. Yeah, that's the same with us. The other thing that is so depressing is that the elites at the end are consumed by their own greediness and they take everything for themselves. So in our time, it's the oil companies who have just decided the planet is theirs. They're maximizing their profits beyond belief. uh, And it's not going to stop. The elites get into this self-consuming, self-protective, grasping uh, mode where they are willing. This again is historically based they are willing to destroy everything for their own good benefit. It's, you know, it's, it's horrifying and enraging and it always happens. And I think the third thing that is worthy of note in this pattern is that um, internal conflicts become so strong that whatever, whichever the empire is, people fail to realize the real enemy. The enemy may be, you know, a marauding uh, gangs of vandals and goths coming in to take over the culture. It could have been ISIS, Al-Qaeda, but it really now is climate. And our inability to get together to work for the benefit of the planet, we are way past the tipping points of restoring health to the planet, but there's so much work we could do to make life more livable as the planet continues to act out its, its natural laws. I mean, you know, we've, we've denied them and basically Gaia, the planet just says, well, I'm sorry, but those were the laws. (laughs) And now there are consequences like any parent would, any parent would express. So, What I think is so important for me to communicate right now, but in my work in general, is once we really see clearly where we are, we have the possibility not of getting totally depressed, overwhelmed, and even suicidal, but we have the possibility of asking, okay, what's needed here? What work would be of use to this time? Not my fantasies about creating just societies or ending racism or all of these things are absolutely important goals, but I'll have to say over and over, they are no longer achievable. So where do we give our heart and soul What is the work that needs doing that we could contribute to? And you can't answer that if you're lost in some fantasy of, well, we're going to work it out. Technology is going to save us. We just get enough people together. 
we're going to shift everything. It, it doesn't work that way. We're in a cycle and we need to recognize where we are. And I do understand how impossible, maybe just difficult it is to take this in. That's why I'm so focused on communities of people who can support each other so that if one of us goes down in despair, I still have my periods, my hours of despair. It used to be a few days. Now it's just, now I know what I have to do, but I still feel the pain of the world. Um, And at times I just have to sit with it. But I'm in a community where if one of us is really feeling low, the others can say, well, we know what we're doing. We're together. Let's, you know, we'll give Meg a little time to recover. Um, but we do need to be in community in, in a necessary way. But it's not so that we're going to change the whole world. I think my work now is focused on go local, figure out what's uh, what's going on in your community that needs you, and think about preparation, mitigation, and how we can help locally people shift from fear and anxiety to realizing there's still good work to do, and let's just make sure we're together to do that. Yeah, there's still good work to do. Let's make sure we do it together. You asked some really uh, poignant questions there, Meg, about um, – rather than trying to solve the world's problems, asking questions like what's needed here and the remembering the importance, which I think is a little antithetical to how a lot of people live in a what is increasingly a, a lonely and isolated society, uh, one that is so entrenched in technology that we feel or we think we feel a semblance of connection to others when we are actually, as, as many studies and statistics and research shows, feeling more and more isolated from one another. Okay. The importance of community and being in direct relationship to others so that when we do hit our, our periods of despair, recognizing the pain of the world, the state of the world, and this, this likelihood, um, or at least or possibility, likelihood, probability of, of collapse uh, at, at a societal level, that there are ways to still engage with the world. And I know that that's where you're, oh, do you have a response to that? Well, uh, the quote that I've made famous, it's a, a, cloudy origin but it's we were together i forget the rest (laughs) that's what i would have on a tombstone i don't expect to have a tombstone but that's what i would want as a summation yeah we were together I forget the rest. <laughs> a little, a little dark humor. The important in conversations right. like these. It's to a, really, it's an orientation to what's of yeah. utmost value in life. Right. Absolutely. And so, yeah. I know you are working with um, communities, and you've always been working with leaders and activists. And now you're working. You're immersing uh, yourself in the work of training who you call warriors for the human spirit. So maybe we can start to transition and talk a little That's bit great. about. Yeah, like solutions and orientations, like what is what does it mean to develop consciousness? How do we like what do we do with that question? What's needed here? But yeah. can you first tell us about your warriors for the human spirit and how this is connected to um a, a certain a certain kind of like spiritual outlook and orientation of warriorship Definitely. and what that please. So in response to the feelings of I imagine people who are listening to me for the first time where you're feeling overwhelmed 
that it's too bleak, it's too dark, it's too despairing. Once we actually locate where we are on the patterns of history and you realize, okay, I'm not going to, you know, I still want to serve. I still want to make a difference. That motivation has to be in you that um, in the midst of overwhelming depression and despair, I still want my life, my work to be meaningful. And that's where Warriors for the Human Spirit was born because I was working with leaders and activists and just saying, you've got to use your power and influence, your positional authority, your informal authority to really start focusing on a higher goal, which is how do I serve people who are anxious, fearful, and suffering? I mean, anxious and fearful is a definition of suffering, isn't it? So uh, this began, I, I was trained in the Buddhist tradition of Shambhala warriorship, which Joanna Macy made famous in her incredible work which is a prophecy from ancient, ancient times that there comes a time when all of life is in danger and hangs by the frailest of threads. Prophecy goes on to say, great barbarian powers have arisen, which threaten one another with weapons of mass destruction. And at that time, the Shambhala warriors an ancient kingdom named Shambhala, the Shambhala warriors appear and they only have two weapons. So for anyone who's still fussing about the term warrior, please listen. The only weapons we have are our compassion and our insight. And you need to have both because if you're just compassionate, you'll be overwhelmed with grief for what's happening to people and planet. If you're just insightful and discerning, you'll be kind of cold and removed and uh, not able to engage with people. So warrior training was born from that prophecy, from, from the Buddhist tradition. It was brought in by one of my core teachers, Chokyam Trungpa, in the, in the 70s and 80s, well, the 70s. And I always knew that that was a role I wanted for myself to be the presence of insight and compassion, no matter what's going on around me. Wow. That sounds like good work. Um, and as the terrors of this time keep escalating at furious speed, um, I began training leaders and activists who wanted to develop, not consciousness, but wanted to develop the capacity to stay and to be of service and not get caught up in rage and anger continuously, um, not get taken out by despair and depression, but to understand, okay, this is where we are. I know it's, there's more suffering in the future we're not solving these problems. And I know that my work is to be present for people with my insight and compassion. And I quote Teddy Roosevelt, President Teddy Roosevelt, a lot, do what you can where you are with what you have. 
So be very local, be very present. But then I've also created, because I see it's still possible, the whole ideal of creating an island of sanity. And that's really where I've taken my work in the second edition of Who Do We Choose to Be? And we'll be doing a separate short book on how you lead an island of sanity. So I'm trying to be very practical um, because if you can create enough difference and even barriers from this general tsunami of fear and aggression and greed, you still can lead in ways that support people. That's the old fashioned view of empowered empowerment, participative leadership, all the things we thought were possible in the nineties in my work also. Um, But now it's, you have to take on this role see yourself as standing apart from these overwhelming dynamics, learn how to cope with your own strong emotions of fear and anxiety and despair and grief, have practices for that, and then develop a a stable mind through meditation, develop the ability to see clearly through, we do a lot of direct perception exercise. How do you see past your filters? How do you just take in the information that's out there? So it's a very robust training program. It has taken many different forms uh, since COVID and the death of my colleague partner, Jerry Grinelli, we're reshaping how we offer these different aspects to train as a warrior, but the personal commitment is foremost in that I am a person who still wants to contribute. And I acknowledge the reality of this time. And then I find ways to both protect myself emotionally from these big ups and downs that are just are actually wise reactions to what's going on in the world. Um, and I learn how to develop this stability and insight and compassion as, as necessary partners. And it works. I mean, we've trained several hundred people now, and it's amazing how, how well-grounded they are and not fearful of the future and just being willing to stay in the midst of it all and offer themselves. There's so many it's a big commitment though. It's yeah. A it's a, commitment. it's a big commitment. Cause there's, it's, it's such a, it's such a paradigm shift. There's, and there's so many perceptive perception changes and practices that I hear required because there's kind of breaking, breaking expectations of like what is normal, right. And anticipating changes that have been happening will continue to happen just because not only because those are laws of, of life and and nature, but the, the extent of crisis will more likely than not get worse. So embracing that, but also, as you mentioned, Meg, practicing the development of consciousness, the, the existence in community and trying to break free of what I, I know I've heard you call like the hope and hopelessness the hope and fear, the cycle hope and of fear. hope and fear. Indeed. Yes. And could you tell us where 
where and how, so I'm kind of hearing you describe this as, you know, um, oftentimes we do, we talk in dialectics or we speak in, you know, we kind of uh, polarize these things. Like either we have hope or we have fear and anxiety, but it sounds like there's a middle way. No, it's could not you- that at all. Okay. So it's yeah, not binary. It's um, everything. And this is, I'm just going to give you Asian spirituality right now. Sure. And, and primarily this is very big in Buddhism, but it's also in, other Asian spiritual traditions that we're in this uh, society, we're trying to get away from binary, but in fact, this is how life works. There's light and dark. There's uh, however you define it, good and bad. There's judgment, non-judgment. There's uh, so that's the first thing. So there's, clear scene and there's cloudy scene. So we need to understand that it's only through opposites. And this is one of the gifts of Asian culture that it's only through opposites that things take form, right? So we're not talking about a middle ground here generally, but that's just my little teaching on Asian, (laughs) Asian thought. But when it comes to hope and fear, We are talking about the same dynamic and the way it is expressed is that when I hope for something and it doesn't happen, instantly I will feel disappointment, fear. You can't have one expression of hopefulness without opening yourself to disappointment and in many cases now despair because things are just being swept away, good work, good projects, get defunded, get uh, uh, disabled or discredited. Um, The path beyond hope and fear is clarity. And that's what I was saying earlier. I see what's going on and I'm trying to define a useful path of contribution through this reality. I don't need to succeed. I don't need successful outcomes. So here we've just dissed our whole cultural orientation. All right. Implementation plans, goal setting, and, you know, success markers along the way. The quote I use all the time because it is perfect is from the first leader of the Czech Republic, Václav Havel. He said, Hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something is worth doing no matter how it turns out. So when we can free ourselves of hope and fear and see clearly what we think would be a useful contribution in the moment over the next year, um, then we have enormous energy. We're no longer uh, drugged by what has been termed hopium, which is you just rely on hope to pump you up. But in fact, it's a drug because it's not based on reality. It's not based on clear seeing. Um, and we're, we're in hopium crazed <laughs> drug uh, addiction at this point. And I, did a whole seminar on it and I'm releasing a self-paced learning um, 
offering about freeing ourselves from the addiction to hope, and that will be available in April. But we are crazed about hope. And I just recently learned that in any indigenous language that was known to me by the expert who was talking to me, there's no word for hope. There's no concept for hope. So just think about that. You know, what we need is an absolute source of motivation. Uh, what we keep grasping for more and more, we're just looking for signs of hope. If we were living in an indigenous culture, we wouldn't even have that as an orientation to reality. So hope turns out not only to be the partner of fear and disappointment, but hope also turns out to be a disconnect from reality. And that's why indigenous peoples who don't have a word for lying and deceit. So this this is just mind blowing to me, right? But a good lens into how corrupted and crazed our culture has become. They are interested in learning as much as they can about what's going on and what works in relationship, living close to the land, to Mother Earth. There's nothing romantic about this. It was survival. And then it was passed down. And it leads to a pattern in indigenous cultures where they can cope with what's happening. So we get upset, oh, this is too depressing. It's all doom and gloom. I'm still hopeful. That kills us. That That is a kind of a psychological and physical suicide. And there's a recent wonderful book on indigenous thinking and being called We Are the Middle of Forever. I just love that title. Yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> so provocative. Yeah. That they know how to stay here. And so everything in our culture mitigates against this, right? We have to be hopeful. We have to create change. We have to make things happen. We have to be brave, strong, fearless. And inside, we're in a battle with reality. We're in a confrontation with reality. In some of us, we're playing masters of the universe. Um, and so, you know, I more and more find teachings and comfort and understandings from indigenous elders. It's too late to use their wisdom to rescue ourselves from now, but it's a way of being that opens us to the possibility of a beautiful, deep relationship with here, with the planet. And that in itself is soul-saving, um, nourishing. You know, if we develop a sense of belonging, even though we've destroyed so much, uh, that is the stronger healing emotion. I know I belong here, and I know that life wants me here. Yeah. Meg, you've been so generous with your time. I just want to ask you one kind of sign-off question. And, and you've been speaking extensively to how we react, how we might you know, react or engage with the state of the world, civilization, kind of uh, giving up hopium, as, as you call and others call it, um, the, the, the attraction to hope or changing everything or saving the planet single-handedly. 
in engaging in these different ways. Um, I wonder if you could leave a parting message or thought uh, for our listeners. You know, we, we tend to ask people, uh, our guests at the end, you know, we go into some deep stuff and we've gone, we've gone probably as deep and as daunting as we ever have on the show today talking about this stuff, a uh, uh, civilization collapse, but um, without whitewashing or spinning it in a way that's like uh, toxic, positive or anything like that. I wouldn't expect that of you, even if, even if I twisted your arm. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what would you like our listeners to walk away with considering what the new story can be, especially if they consider themselves as attracted to these ideas of, of right. being warriors for the human spirit? Thank you. I, I would, there is a path here and what I've described, uh, and you may be on different stages of the path, the first stage is entering this dark woods of reality and understanding what's going on. But the reason you're on the path to begin with is because you want to contribute. You aren't self-serving to begin with. It's not all about me. You're leaving behind this highly narcissistic, entitled culture um, it, that is destroying us, literally destroying us, uh, because mental well-being depends on contributing to others for others' benefit. So I'm saying this is who you are. I don't know who you are, but if you're listening to Dave, I'm sure this is who you are. So you've already been on a path of contribution and wanting to make a difference and lead a good life also. I'll give you that. I lead a great life, um, but you need to keep walking on this path with that core essential motivation. I want to contribute. I want to make a difference. And as you pass through this dark wood, and I'm sort of thinking of Dante's image in the middle of my life, I came to a dark wood in which all was lost. The other side of the dark wood is identifying, okay, what's a real contribution? How can I serve my family, my coworkers, my community as a person who is good to be around because I'm present, I'm not angry, I'm not judgmental. That takes training. But if you just keep in mind your essential reason for being here, which is not about you, it's about how I can contribute to the greater community I'm part of, my family to start with, but my workplace, my community, and, and just keep that in mind. And then you start asking, okay, what's needed here? What's, you try and see more and more clearly what is needed in the situation, not what I thought I wanted to do. And this leads to true joyful expression because you're in service, you're in connection, you're in relationship, and you feel I'm really here and I belong here. It doesn't get better than that but you first have to pass through this dark wood. 
Margaret Wheatley, author, teacher, co-founder, and president of the Burkana Institute. And Meg's latest work is called Warriors for the Human Spirit, a songline, which is a multi-sensory audio and narrative experience guided by voice and sound. You can check that out, including some audio samples at margaretwheatley.com. Meg, thank you so much for joining us, for sharing your wisdom, your experience. This has been a really moving conversation, and I'm just so grateful to have shared this time with you. Thank you. I'm very grateful also to you, Dave, because you asked very good, welcoming questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you, as always, for listening to this episode of The New Story Is. If you're feeling generous today, if you're feeling good, if you enjoyed what we talked about, please follow or subscribe to our show, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so you never miss a new episode. You can also leave us a rating and review on those platforms. Smash that five stars for us to help others know that what we're doing is legit and worth listening to. It goes a long way into helping us find new listeners. Thank you for being here. Until next time, story on.